0: We do some really weird stuff in the church, you know what? I mean, some think about how odd some of the things are that we ask you to do on a regular basis. We ask you to come and sing out loud in front of people that you don't even know. Um, probably feels a little odd at times. Sometimes people even lift their hands up in the air while they're singing. At other times, we take these weird little miniature wine cups and give them to you and, and they actually trick you because it's just full, filled with a little bit of juice in there and then there's this little square cracker in the bottom of it and we talk about blood being spilled and bodies being broken, uh, just kind of a little weird, you know? Other times we encourage people to get into a tub of water in their clothes in front of people. And then we push their face down under the water, they come back up, and everybody starts clapping as if they're excited that they survived the two seconds of being shoved down under the water, right? I mean, think about it for a moment. Some of the things that are really core elements to who we are as a church probably seem a little odd if you're not used to it. And today I want to jump in to say, okay, what is the foundation of some of these core things that we do and practice as a church? What's the biblical foundation? We'll talk a little bit about some of the history behind it. Uh, But these things go back certainly to New Testament days and to the early church. And I want to begin by talking about this really strange habit that we have of singing Uh, together in front of one another i want you to open your bible with me to ephesians chapter 5 and we're going to start there we're actually going to be skipping around a little bit today to a few different passages because i want to want to talk about each of these topics briefly ephesians 5 verses 15 through 20 says be very careful then how you live Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the goal that he lays out here in this little section is we want to make the most of every opportunity. We want, we're to avoid uh, foolishness, understand what the Lord's will is. It's interesting that he uses this kind of a contrast or a comparison of don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You know, we, we talked about this in days past recently, the fact that all of us who are believers in Jesus have received the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. We are given the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But then we are commanded on an ongoing basis to be filled with the Spirit. So what's the difference? Well, we receive the Spirit once. We're filled with the Spirit on a daily basis or even a moment-by-moment type of basis. And the goal of how do we get filled with the Spirit is to get the stuff of the flesh out of the way, right? If we clear out that junk, we're clearing out you know, uh, lust and materialism and desire for comfort and whatever it may be. I mean, just the list goes on and on, right, of the things of the flesh that can be inside of us that keep us from being filled completely by the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting to me that in the context of talking about being filled with the Spirit, verse 18, the very next verse in verse 19 says, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. And then it commands us to sing and make music from our hearts to the Lord. Isn't that interesting that there is a connection there between being filled with the Spirit and singing or, or, or this, this habit that we have of you know, worshiping together the way that we go about doing that. And it's interesting, too, to me. Then he talks about psalms, which were originally written to be sung, right? That, that's what the purpose of the psalms was. Hymns, songs from the Spirit, which just to me says that there's a wide variety of styles or types of music or things that can be used as an expression of singing and worshiping God. That's not really the issue. It's not so much the type of music. The issue is what it says at the end of verse 19 when it says sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. It's a heart issue. And that's what matters more than anything else is that we make music from our hearts. And I'm thankful for that because that tells me that you don't have to be a good singer in order to make music from your heart to the Lord. And that's especially important to me because I don't sing well. you don't believe me, ask Judd. He'll tell you. That is not one of my gifts, but That's okay. I'd still make music in my heart to the Lord, and we can still do that because that's really what matters most of all. Now, certainly, you wouldn't want me on stage with a microphone trying to lead you in worship. That would not be a good thing. That would not be helpful. But just as an individual, as a follower of Christ, I can sing and worship the Lord because it's a matter of the heart more than anything else. And it gives us an opportunity to express our Love for God, our gratitude for Him, and, and in a way it says that that is helping us being f- to be filled with the Spirit. There's a connection there between being filled with the Spirit and our, our singing to the Lord and the things that, that we do. Now, there, there's a place for the just very intimate, direct communication with God. You know, what I mean, just, just you and God, just singing to God in those very tender kind of, of moments of worship. But it also says, not only that, but it also says that we are to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. See, there's also an aspect of our, our worship or our singing specifically as this form of worship. That we do that with one another. You guys realize this, right? That, That when we sing together, yes, we are at times singing directly to God as if nobody else is in the room. But there are other times that we are singing the words of who he is to recount God's faithfulness to one another. We are encouraging one another in our time. So it's both. It's both a corporate aspect. That's why we can sing and, uh, on our own, and we should do that in our own worship of God. But there's something about coming together as the body of Christ where we're able to do this together that, that we're able to basically remind one another of God's faithfulness and His character and who He is. So there's some, some real power in that. There's power in our ability to just communicate directly to God through our singing as well. Um, our singing to the Lord can be a powerful thing. Consider the story of Dmitri, a Russian pastor who was arrested for his faith. Every morning from his jail cell, Dmitri did the same thing. First thing that he did when he woke up, he stood up straight, he faced east, he raised his hands in the air, and he sang a heart song to Jesus. Every single morning. In the prison, out loud, you can imagine how the other prisoners responded to this guy getting up early in the morning and singing to Jesus. They didn't like it. They, they, they cursed him. They uh, you know, made fun of him. They took their, their cups and rattled it against the, the iron bars to try to drown out his song. They hated it. And the the guards didn't care for Dimitri at all. They tried to break his spirit. They tried to get him to confess that he wasn't really a follower of Jesus and they finally broke him. They finally convinced him that his family had deserted him, that that nobody was left, nobody uh, was following Christ anymore. And he just broke down one day. And he told him, tomorrow morning I will sign the confession. The confession was... I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm a paid agent of the Western government that's trying to destroy the USSR. That was the confession that they were going to have Dimitri sign, and he finally gave in. But that night, his family, since who hadn't deserted him and hadn't left the faith, that was all a lie, they sensed that something was not right with, with Dimitri. They gathered together to pray for him. And Dimitri said the Holy Spirit allowed him to hear the voices of his wife, his children, and his brother who were praying for him that night. And he knew that they were still strong in their faith. The next morning when the guards came with, the, with his confession to sign, he said, I'm not signing anything. I know that you've lied to me. I know that my family is still following Jesus. And, and so, of course, they were furious with him. They, they took him out to be punished. And as Dimitri walked down the long corridor... 1,500 hardened criminals stood up in their jail cells, faced east, raised their hands in the air, and began to sing Dimitri's heart song to Jesus. The guards that, that were taking him out, they just immediately dropped their hands off of him, stepped back in terror, and they said, who are you? Here was his answer. He said, I am a son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. Not long after that, Dimitri was released. The man who wrote his story was interviewing him, and he asked him to sing this heart song for him, and he did. He said he didn't understand a word of it because it was in Russian. He didn't speak Russian, but he said it didn't matter. He didn't have to because he just could sense the presence of God. There was power in Dimitri singing his heart song to Jesus. There is power, guys, in our singing together as an expression of our worship. There's also power in the way we receive communion together. I referred earlier to our little fake wine cups and the elements that are in them, and, and this really might seem like an odd practice. Um, but let's look at, at, at where the idea behind this comes from. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 22 says in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to so which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Paul's upset, isn't he? Why? What is going on here? Why is he so upset? We need to go back to the original intent of what the Lord's Supper was supposed to be. Luke 22, 19 and 20 describes what happened at that Last Supper. It says, and the he, of course, is Jesus. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You know, from the very beginning, the church has uh, gone through this practice of eating of the bread, drinking of the wine or the juice, to remind ourselves of what Jesus went through at that last supper. The, the, the bread being broken, representing his body. The, the wine representing his blood that was about to be spilled out. And in the early church, the Lord's Supper was actually a supper supper. They would gather together. We read in in Acts chapter 2, I think it may have been last Sunday or a couple weeks ago, where it talks about uh, how they they broke bread together in their homes. That's a reference, yes, to a meal that they were having, but also to Lord's Supper, to to communion. There was an important aspect and a meaning to what was going on. And yet in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, something has shifted significantly so that Paul is really upset about it. And he's very harsh. In fact, he starts out the little beginning of the, the section that I read. It says that your meetings do more harm than good. Like, What in the world was happening that it was actually making things worse that they were doing what they were doing? And he describes their, their so-called version of the, the, the Lord's Supper as creating, verse 18, uh, says it created divisions among them. They come together as a church, but there are divisions among you. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, we need to know something of the culture of that day. And this was written to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a major port city as uh, uh, being where it was, it had opportunity for a lot of commerce. That meant you could get pretty wealthy in a city like that. and So there were many wealthy people, but like any other city, there were also many poor people and everybody in between. So maybe more than than most cities, there was this incredible melting pot of rich, poor, and and those in between. And the church tended to be a cross-section of society, and so there would have been rich, poor, and everyone in between in the church as well. Well, in that day, at that time, those who were rich didn't eat with those who were poor. They tended to separate themselves by social class when they would come together for a meal. And apparently that... Habit made its way into the church because when he's describing what's happening here, it, it says when you come together, verse 20, it's not the Lord's Supper because when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. So these groups of people that had plenty are are having their own private meals separate from everybody else. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. He's like, how in the world... you know. Why would you do this? Why would you, when you come together as the church at a time that should be bringing unity to the body of Christ, you're coming together and making things worse because you're separating yourselves and it's almost like just rubbing their nose in it that we have plenty over here and you don't even have enough food to eat. It's, it's a big deal because the Lord's Supper is supposed to bring unity. Unity. It's supposed to bring the body of Christ together, not to divide the body of Christ from one another. That's why this was such a big deal. And the reason Lord's Supper should bring us together is because it's a reminder to us that we all are are saved. We're all made right before God the very same way. The the elements that we use in communion are, are there for a reason. We have these little little squares, this little cracker. But this is is a reminder of the body of Jesus that was broken. There's a little piece that was broken off from the rest. We have the juice that's a reminder of the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us. These visuals are important because they tell a story. They tell the story of the only way for us to be made right. With God. Doesn't matter if you're rich, doesn't matter if you're poor, doesn't matter what your social standing is. See, the one thing that all of us have in common is that we're all sinful. And our sin separates us from a God who is holy. There is nothing that we could ever do in order to make ourselves right with God. No, it's just impossible. We're not capable of doing that. But Jesus came for that very reason, for that very purpose. He didn't come just to be a teacher. He didn't come just to set an example. Jesus came, ultimately, to become a sacrifice for our sins. He came to die in our place. And when Jesus died on the cross, when his body was broken, when his blood was spilled out for us, all of God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus on the cross at that moment. He was dying to take the penalty that, that we deserve. And he also was giving us an opportunity to find grace and to be forgiven. And when he came back to life on the third day and walked out of that tomb, he was showing us that we, even though we were dead spiritually, can now have new life just as he came back to life. And so we remember the sacrifice of Jesus whenever we take communion together. And it's a powerful reminder That there's only one way for us to be forgiven. John 3.17 is the verse that follows the most popular verse in the Bible. Everybody knows John 3.16. A lot of people don't know verse 17, uh, which says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Then it goes on and it says right after that, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. See, we are under condemnation apart from Christ. The only way for us to not be under the condemnation that we deserve is if we put our trust in Jesus. And so that's what this supper was all about. That's, that's what they were to do when they got together and they would observe communion. You would think that this would bring great unity to the body of Christ. And it should have. And that's why Paul was so upset. But it's not just the church in Corinth that struggled with division because of their, the way they were going about communion. It's interesting, if you go through and read church history, especially when you start getting into around the age of the Reformation, there was a lot of clash between different theologians over this very topic. I took a, a seminar in my PhD studies on Martin Luther. And it was fascinating and kind of disturbing, actually, to read um, just all the controversies and the, the all-out wars that one Reformer would have with another because they disagreed over what communion meant and what the, the elements and uh, what that was all about. The, the, t- the uh, common teaching at that time in the Catholic Church, which is still the teaching today, is something called transubstantiation, which means that when the priest blesses the bread and the wine, that it literally turns into the body and the blood of Jesus. Not just a symbol, but literally is transformed into the body and blood of Jesus. This comes from John six fifty three, where Jesus said to them, it says, Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. And they took these words very Literally. And that's where this doctrine came from. Well, Luther comes along and he says, well, there's, he he taught what was called the real presence. The real presence of Jesus is in the bread and the wine. But he taught something different, consubstantiation. That word con means with. And so he believed that the real presence of Jesus was with the bread and the wine, that they didn't literally turn into the body and the blood of Jesus, but he used as an analogy the incarnation. He said just as in the incarnation there was the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus commingling together in the person of Jesus in the same way the real presence and the, the bread and the wine, they're, they're together, uh, and, and that's, that was his take on it. But then you had others who began to teach that, well, no, we really believe that, this, that the elements are just a symbol of the body and blood of Jesus, which is what we believe. But that created incredible controversy as well. There was one of the reformers by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. It's kind of a mouthful. It's hard to say. He and Luther would just go head to head. I mean, they're writing papers back and forth, yelling at each other, and, I mean, just duking it out. And it's just kind of sad to read all this stuff because... They seem to have forgotten that both of them were on the same page about reforming the church to to get back to the Bible. To get back to a belief in salvation uh, by grace through faith alone and not by works. But they spent a lot of time fighting over their view of communion and and of the the elements there. And I I just come back to, to this passage and say the intended purpose... Of communion is to bring the church together. There are still different views out there. There are still you know, people that believe different things. Or we think this is what it means. Or that's what it means. Can I just remind you. That when we, when we take these elements together. When we receive them together. This is intended to bring the body together. It's not intended to be something that is divisive. It's intended to be something that is unifying. That's what should happen. But there's significant symbolic meaning in these elements to remind us, only through the sacrifice of Jesus are we able to find forgiveness. All right, let's look at one more rather odd thing that we do as a church and what the intended outcome should be. And that's believer's baptism. We baptize one another. Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. It says, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It says we were baptized into Jesus. At that point, we were baptized into his death And the purpose of that was so that we find new life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, we have new life in him as well. Baptism is intended to be a highly symbolic event. It is significant. Again, it it visually tells a story. Just as the the broken bread and the spilled uh, uh, juice or wine tells the story of the body and blood of Jesus, baptism tells a story as well of full surrender being buried with Christ into his death. It's a beautiful picture of lordship. And that word, by the way, it's important for us to know, the word baptize literally means to immerse. That, that was a Greek word, baptizo, means to immerse something. Not just in a religious sense, but if you were to immerse something, you, were, you baptized it. And so when we, when we baptize by immersion, which I do think that that is important because of the picture it creates... When a person is immersed and put underneath the water, every part of them is is immersed in that water. And it's symbolic of the fact when it says that you were baptized or even maybe change that word to immersed in your mind, you were immersed into Christ. There's no part of you that doesn't belong to Jesus. It's a picture of lordship. Every bit of who I am is immersed in Christ and is covered with Christ. It's a picture of the old way of life being put to death. That's why we say when we're baptizing, we were buried with him into in, in death. We were raised in new life. It's a beautiful, symbolic picture. And it's something that, that we practice for those who are followers of Christ. Because my, my question would be this. If baptism is a picture of the old way of life, the sinful way of life being put to death, and new life that we have in Christ, how can that have any meaning for a person who has not yet experienced that? Right? How can baptism mean something if it represents something that has not taken place yet in the life of the person being baptized? And that's why we we practice believer's baptism. Now, again, a little history, a little background on that 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 I find fascinating During the time of the Reformation, there was a group of priests uh, that gathered together to begin studying the Bible, which may be surprising that they didn't really do that very much back then. But the more they studied the Bible, the more convinced they became that the true mode of baptism should be believer's baptism. Now, at that time, the church taught infant baptism. But they said, no, I I believe that that based on the New Testament, this is how it should be done. There was a Catholic priest by the name of George Blaurock who begged the others in that group to baptize him upon his profession of faith in Christ. They did. He, in turn, then baptized them. And they went out and they began to teach what they had discovered from Scripture, this biblical mode of believer's baptism. didn't go over so well. In fact, that's that's a bit of an understatement. There was so much pushback against this um, that that many of them were put to death because of their teaching on believers' baptism. The first martyr was a guy by the name of Felix Mons. He was taken from a prison in Wallenberg on a cold winter day, forced to get onto a boat, taken out to the middle of of a river, shackled, and then thrown into the water where he drowned. His executioner was a pastor. There was so much division over this idea of a baptism, just like there was with the Lord's Supper. And you've got people that that claim to be following the same Jesus, killing one another because they didn't agree with the way they were baptized. Believer's baptism comes comes at a high price. And I'm thankful for those who are willing to take a stand to say this is the way that it should be done. Um, There was a... um, a pastor and a uh, former professor at Wheaton College, his name is Sam Storms, he estimated that 5,000 of these rebaptizers they were later called Anabaptists, that 5,000 of them were executed in Switzerland uh, between 1525 and 1535. 5,000 people put to death because of their view of baptism. The real question is, what does Scripture teach? And Scripture is clear that baptism is an expression of faith. In fact, it is one that that should be taken as quickly as possible after coming to faith. We see several examples of that in the book of Acts, uh, where the Ethiopian eunuch, for example, Acts chapter 8, he comes to faith, and he says, what is to stop me from being baptized? He's baptized right on the spot. The, The people in the home of Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, they believe. They're immediately baptized. Chapter 16, the jailer and his family believe. And they're baptized. And we see this regular habit of of just following baptism. Or following, excuse me, faith in Christ with baptism. We should view baptism as an initial step of faith, not the culmination of faith. It's an initial step of obedience. Now, the one exception in my mind and how we practice that today is with children who are younger. I think there, there is some value in making sure that there's some teaching and understanding, and let's make sure they've had an opportunity to learn the difference between what it means to trust in Christ and take that step of baptism. But for most of us, what that, that says to me is that we should take that step as soon as we possibly can. Now, I know what that means. For some of us listening, it's like, okay, beginning to feel a little bit uncomfortable now, right? Because I know that I've trusted in Christ, but maybe not taken that step. Listen, I just want to encourage you to get, get, the, get things in the right order, right? We come to Christ, and then we follow him in believer's baptism. I mean, every day, I take a shower, and I do things in the same order. I shower first, and then I put clean clothes on after I get out of the shower. I don't put clean clothes on and then get in the shower, Right? That would be doing things backwards. We need to get things in the right order. We're cleansed not through baptism. That's not what makes us clean. What purifies our hearts is faith in Jesus. But once we've been cleansed, then we take that step of baptism. So I want to encourage you to do that, not because it saves you. If you have gotten things out of order, maybe you were baptized as an infant, maybe you went through a confirmation, whatever it may be. I just want to encourage you to, to get things in the right order. And to take that step as a way of following Christ publicly. I just want to encourage you to do this one thing and that's pray about it. Don't feel guilt or somebody pressuring you. But just pray and ask God to lead you in that way. Now, Again, I know some of the things we do probably seem a little weird because you don't do this kind of stuff anywhere but in church, right? But there is a a point to it. There's a purpose to it. All of these things help us grow. That's the point. We grow closer to God. We're we're able to connect with each other. I mean, we say as a church that our goal is to connect people to God and each other. Both of those happen when we do these things that we're talking about here, the, the things that we do as a church. It helps us connect to God on a more personal level, and it helps us to make those personal connections with one another. That's why I want to encourage you to get plugged into the body of Christ. Whatever that next step is for you, maybe that next step is to trust in Jesus for the first time. Maybe it's to take a step of of publicly expressing that through Believer's Baptism. Uh, Maybe maybe it's to to find a place to connect in a small group, to serve, whatever that is. The reason we urge you to do that is not because we're wanting something from you. It's because of what we want for you. We want you to experience what what the church is intended to be. We want you to know that joy that comes from, from serving and being a part of the body. So that's the challenge. That's my encouragement to you today is to make sure as we're talking about the the body of Christ and what the church is all about, make sure you find your place to connect so that you can grow in your relationship with God your relationship with other people. That's what the church is for. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would help us as your people to be faithful to what you've called us to, to honor you and all that we do. Lord, thank you for the gifts of being able to to sing together and to worship, to uh, be able to receive communion and just the symbol of that and the symbol of baptism and just what those things represent. Lord, we're grateful. And we pray today that our hearts are fully surrendered to you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.